0: Hey, all! Before we get started with our, our Doctor Who Fest, <laughs> humans are stupid, and we have to have a talk about it real quick. Uh, uh, so after we recorded this episode, information came out about the Arthur child that we need to talk about real quick. So first, I'm going to read a statement from Radio Times. It's dated on 17th of October, 2023. Uh, the bbc has confirmed that doctor who's first story and an child won't be included in the back catalog of episodes hitting iplayer this november the broadcaster recently announced that more than 800 episodes of doctor who including classic series will be released on bbc iplayer in line with the sci-fi 60th anniversary however the very first story written by anthony coburn which introduced william hartnell as the first doctor will not be included the bbc has confirmed to radio times so we'll stop there so Good news. When we recorded this, we didn't know that BBC iPlayer was getting all classic series. Originally, we had to get it all through BritBox. So you're going to be hear comments of me bitching about how I had to go to BritBox to get this stuff. Turns out, in a few weeks, I won't, and that's great.
1: And we had but a big re- celebration in the Discord when we found that part out.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was awesome, and I'm still excited about that. But the, the, there's a, the re- normally, and I would just put a note saying, hey, by the way, this may not be streaming. We don't normally do these kinds of things for any kind of streaming changes. Uh, but we're doing it this time because of why this is. Uh, so, most of the information I got from the uh, Gallifrey subreddit, um, as posted by someone named the name of Gallifrey and Prydonian, which is a fantastic username, frankly. Uh, and uh, basically... What's happening here is Unearthly Child, the actual script was written by Anthony Coburn. Anthony Coburn was one of the people who created Doctor Who along with Cindy Newman, Verity Lambert, C.E. Weber, Donald Wilson, and David Whitaker. Some of those names you'll hear us talk about, some of those names we have forgotten at the time we were recording it because we didn't do research. Anthony Coburn died in 77. Uh, his estate went to his wife, his wife died in 2013 and went to his son, uh, Steph Coburn, uh, S-T-E-F. Uh, Steph Coburn has since then tried to sue the BBC several times, P- initially over the idea that his father created the idea of the TARDIS. He didn't. Ernie Lambert did. Yet another case of a white guy trying to take it from a woman. And he also tried to claim that uh, he owns the police box exterior, which is not true. The BBC had settled that earlier in the early 2000s in a court case with the Metropolitan Police Department. So he has now come around and basically said that uh, he is using his ownership of the estates to pull an unearthly child from circulation with the BBC. Now, again, if this is just someone or or, a estate owner asserting the rights of their estates, again, probably wouldn't have gotten recording about this. But I I did the research so that y'all don't have to do this. I went to Steph Coburn's Twitter. Steph Coburn is a transphobe. Steph Coburn is a racist. Steph Coburn is alt-right. He is a huge supporter of 45. Uh, He is a huge supporter of Brexit. Um, And by his own words, he's doing this primarily because he does not want a queer black person playing the doctor. So. We re- we recorded this not knowing any of this context. Uh, so A, there is a chance if you go to watch this yourself at the time that you're listening to this, it may not be available because it should be early November by the time we- this launches when you're listening to it. So this change may not find. It may still be on BritBox. None, none of this conversation talks about brickbox. We don't know if BritBox is also going to be pulling it or not. We don't know. But B, even if it were streaming, we wouldn't necessarily encourage you to go watch it in a space that would give money back to Steph Coburn because Steph Coburn is a fucking bigot. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that people like this can hold a chunk of Doctor Who's history hostage. If things go the way I hope they do, uh, the BBC will ultimately just try to uh, purchase the rights to this so we don't have to deal with this again. This happened in previous cases where estates have tried to take control of this um but to be clear steph corporate had nothing to do with the creation of this he is effectively a glorified patent troll trying to use his very tiny legal control to get a huge chunk of money out of the bbc how they're they're humans humans. um so i could go on about this this piece of shit. i'm not going to i don't want to give this guy my energy you shouldn't give them your energy either if you have a copy of another child lying around that you're looking for an excuse to rewatch on your dvd whatever great watch it if not read the summary of it online listen to us talk about it then jump right to the daleks because terry nations estate state seems to be to work with uh they love money they love getting money from bbc and they love licensing the docs out whenever they can so uh it, it it sucks, it's frustrating. This is the nature of, of this kind of business and it is the, the dark side of the British system that allows uh, creatives to have uh, more control over their own work.
1: And so, while I would not promote such a thing, I will say that you can find almost any television show somewhere in the bowels of YouTube. Yes, yes.
0: Uh, if, if you really wanna watch it, there are ways to do it. That again, don't give Steph Cobra money. But um, I, I certainly have bought a lot of stuff from eBay. And I believe the season one uh, Blu-ray box set is still kicking around. Um, and that was produced before all this stuff happened. Uh, so.
1: I think of note for eBay, though, if you go to eBay. I think I read one of the notes that Steph Coburn also tried to put up DVDs of it for 500 pounds to start kind of a bidding war for them. So pay attention so to who you- you're going to buy it from.
0: Yeah, it did you buy from. He claims he didn't do it. He claims it's somebody else um, and is now having police investigate that. So that may or may not be true. Uh, I I ran out of tolerance to research this guy's bullshit, uh, to be honest. But uh, yeah, if you do go in eBay, double check, make sure you're giving it um, from. uh, If you really want some quality people in the UK to buy people from, I've done some research on that. I'm happy to talk to you about it offline. Um, As Chris says if you're wanting to uh, sail the seas of the internet and find these things in your own way as a privateer, that's your own conscience. But
1: this or if you is, you want to send me the low, low cost of 2000 American dollars. I <laughs> will send you my first edition VHS tape from when I recorded it off of PBS when a young 13 year old Chris saw it.
0: Wow. There we go. There we go. But anyway, so there it is. Put that out of your head and enjoy us talking about The First Doctor. Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? Have you? To be exiles? Susan and I are cut off from our own planet without friends or protection. But one day we shall get back. Yes, one day.
1: I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Spivey.
0: And today we're going to talk about the William Hartnell era of classic Doctor Who. I'm sure you can talk about the music. We're excited about this one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: A, a random fact that i heard on some other podcast i can't remember when but and i don't remember her name but do you know that the reason that they got the music they have is because of a woman who was doing experimental rock music and Delia she was the that ended up i can't remember i'm sorry ended up creating the theme and she wasn't credited for like 50 years because of weird laws yeah because i actually do know about this because
0: Weirdly, not because of Doctor Who but because of my brief interest in electronic music. Uh, but yes, Delia Derbyshire was the person who created the original um, thing, and she basically kind of just hacked it together. And she wasn't credited because at the time the BBC stereophonic workshop policy was that only the stereophonic workshop got collectively credited. No individual creditors were named for a long time. Yeah. Um, but yes, she inadvertently has become one of the pioneers of electronic music as a result, because she made this
1: without interpretation. She made it purely by the electronic sounds. Did you? Were you surprised by the depth of my already random knowledge about Doctor Who?
0: Oh, no. This I, I know what I'm getting into. We're, we're going to be a random... And this is going to be a tough one because we have a lot to get through. But I think it's actually a good like, way into kind of talking about the show because... For a time travel show, perhaps it's appropriate, but this show is both weirdly prescient and strangely archaic at the same time, because it broke a lot of boundaries at the time. Uh, like I said, uh, first uh, woman to work in electronic music, the producer uh, Verity Lambert um, was one of not only a female producer, which is rarity at the time, but also one of the youngest producers at the time. Uh, she was in her early twenties when she got the job, and, and the first director. Uh, was uh, Indian American, or, or sorry, Indian British, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so, and was a lot of.
1: I want to say it was a Canadian. Ah, brain acting up this morning. I want to say that it was. So one of the the producers was from Canada that came over. That was also part of the crew that originated the show. Like it comes down to those three right. original people, right, which is right. exceptional. That they, that like, they are the core of this, well, I'll say this very show that is considered the epitome of like British television from an American point of view from what we know about it.
0: Yeah. And to be blunt, it was not expected to last more than the season. It was supposed to be kind of, it was the BBC's first foray into populist television like like right before this the bbc where we do educational stuff and that's where mandate is um this is the first experiment into let's do something that is more popular more entertainment but also there is there was kind of a design the reason why it's a time travel show is a way to also be educational and that was the original intent of the show uh, and you'll see vestiges of that as we kind of talk through this it falls away very very rapidly but you do see vestiges of, it, of his idea of it being kind of also a way to teach kids things about science and history. Uh, and so it, it's an educational show by way of being a popular show, but they never expect it to last very long. And so what happened was a lot of people who wouldn't normally get shots in TV did. And it ended up being wildly successful. And as we go through the years, you will see that this has both good and bad consequences as a result. <laughs>
1: And it's interesting just to note now that even when Doctor originally started almost around the, when television was coming into its own, they did that thing where if they didn't think something was going to work, they gave marginalized people an opportunity. And if you notice, we can even compare it back to Sleepy Hollow where something wasn't going to work and they make it more marginalized focused. And that is an ongoing trend. And when it hits, a lot of those marginalized people are removed from the shows, which you will see in Doctor Who as we go forward. Right, right. And it goes back
0: and forth, but uh, the era we're looking at, this is Doctor Who is definitely not the crown jewel, right? It, it is, it is uh, a throwaway thing. And one of the things um, uh, I want to do each episode, we'll see how it pans out, but my, just, I want to throw out a fact, uh, a, a random fact to kind of keep in mind as you watch these, or if you've already watched them, to think as you think about when we go through them, that helps you kind of contextualize some stuff, because this is a a long running show. Uh, Even the era that we're gonna cover, is covers a course of uh, like 25 years. Um, So it's a huge, massive thing, and sometimes bits get lost. Uh, And one of the things that, it's hard to keep in mind actually when you're watching these episodes, but William Hartnell never played the quote unquote first Doctor. He never played a quote unquote Time Lord. As far as he knew, he was just playing a character in the Doctor. Time Lords didn't exist at all during Hartnell's run. Um, the idea of regeneration came purely because they had to fire Hartnell and needed to replace him. Um, so he, none of his performance is informed by anything we know about the Doctor now.
1: And if you want to be more technical about it, he didn't regenerate; he renewed.
0: He renewed. It's, it's right. Yeah, the idea reg- regeneration came with uh, the third Troughton.
1: Doctor, right? It was Troughton too. I think it was trout to Pertway. Hartnell renewed. It was like a renewal. Yeah, Um, and it's a shame that those are some of the episodes that um,
0: we don't have access to anymore. Actually, briefly, brief aside, one of the things that's going to be challenging as we talk through uh, this era is um, a lot of the episodes are missing because the BBC at the time videotape was very, very expensive. And so when a show aired, they did not anticipate any kind of rerun or uh, home market for these shows. So they would bulk erase the tapes um, and record new episodes on them. One of the weird things I know is actually I, I used to work at a, uh, well, I – I didn't work at a station. I, I uh, went to school at a tel, uh, for a television program, and they had a bulk tape eraser, which is a huge thing. You literally just shove a tape into it, and a magnet just goes through and just erases the whole tape. and You pull the tape out. So, I mean, that was kind of for news shows in particular. They just don't keep news footage. Um, so I actually was part of this crime, I guess, where I actually you know, helped erase shows that,
1: to be fair, you probably never want to see.
0: Uh, and a lot of the lost you want to see.
1: a lot of the lost episodes that we got also came from other countries when they sent out the tapes to them they they discovered their old versions of them and they shared them back with the um bbc and that's how we have a lot of the episodes that we have is because of other countries that didn't do that process right um and the very first one we're going to watch uh the earth the child we, we primarily
0: have because um it was uh, rerun because rerun uh, I don't know if you want to go into this, Chris, but it was rerun because of a a weird incident that happened at the time the show premiered. (laughs)
1: Oh oh, yeah. My, my big fact for this one that uh, is uh, is always fascinating for me is that JFK was assassinated one day before the pilot aired. And that is believed to drastically have impacted their ratings because of course no one is going to care about a low budget science fiction show after the U S president has just been killed. And so they aired it again a second time a week later. Yeah. And that is, sadly to this day, why I know
0: when JFK was killed because I know when Doctor Who aired, I just subtracted one day and that's how I know when JFK was killed.
1: It should be the other way around, but that's just how I know it. Do you want to talk about any of the history of like the BBC television or anything like that to give us a, a grounding in it? If you know any of it. I know snippets. I, I do know some of it. So uh, the BBC We've talked about this a little
0: bit uh, in bits and pieces uh, on on the show, but um, the BBC is a public utility in the UK. It it is equivalent to like your gas or your electric. Um, It is something that's completely funded by the government. Um, In fact, uh, in the UK, uh, I have to pay what's called a license fee in order to watch BBC. I don't actually pay the streaming service or anything. Um, I pay the government a, a yearly fee And then it checks to say, Hey, have you paid your license fee? And if yes, then I'm allowed to watch things on TV and, um, or watch things on streaming. Uh, and originally they would have things like detector vans where they drive around to see if people were tuned into certain stations. And if they were, then they would find them for not having paid their license fee. Um, now I believe that websites are actually check traffic to make
1: sure you actually have your fee. Side tangent question Mm is I did not know that. And that is so cool. I'm gonna write that to a story now detector vans in if we go back to remembrance of the daleks
0: yes that is, a de- that, is, is that, that is that, a that detector vans. yes,
1: yes that's okay thank you
0: so it's something I, re- I realized late in life but that's actually a joke it's like a detector van checking to see if someone's illegally transmitting television in a television show where they're trying to determine find the daleks there's actually a joke there that i didn't know for decades until i found out about detector vans yes
1: and <laughs> i just put that joke together now
0: thank you yeah yeah isn't it weird <laughs> It, it, and that's one of the things about being American fans is, is, is uncovering new layers as you learn more little bits about British culture that contemporaries would have known. Uh, but anyway, so up to this point, uh, uh, the BBC originally was obviously radio. Uh, and it was primarily a uh, news and educational outlet. Around this point, they had just started doing something called Open University, um, which is the idea of people could watch television and actually do college courses online or, or on TV, I should say. And But they were still losing time to uh, upcomers uh, like uh, ITV who were just doing purely popular programming. The BBC got around it a bit in places like they did shows like Top of the Pops where um, they couldn't just do popular music, but they could do a news show about what is the best-selling music at the time, and then happened to show those acts on the show. That's how they got around stuff like that. So it was all, again, Doctor Who, it's an educational show, but it's also a science fiction show, right?
1: Because wasn't uh, Verdi Lambert also the producer equivalent on a show that was almost like a PBS master show where they did classics and she did some Mm -hmm. sci-fi stuff that was incredible, that hit a lot of people and they got into it and is one of the reasons that she got to transition over yeah she to did a crew.
0: couple of plays uh which adapted uh, i want to say it was some uh i don't remember exactly but there was, there was, there was some late 50s or 60s stories into yeah all my television and again like that's another reason is that they could do historical plays and if they were filming plays but then if they're filming science fiction but as long as they're framed as plays it was still seen as educational uh, but anyway, Doctor Who was one of the first steps towards, although they were still kind of hedging their bets, it was an explicit attempt because the, the producer you mentioned from Canada was hired from Canada specifically to say, hey, you know how to make popular television, make it for us. Um, and this was the first step in in the the children's, light, what they call light entertainment here, area. And it did really, really well. Minor spoilers uh, for... If you've never watched Doctor Who ever, never heard of Doctor Who ever, the Daleks turned out to be very popular. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they had a The was
1: really rolling in it for a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. They had a whole movement called Dalek Mania, which happens a year after Beatlemania, hence the name, where Daleks were everywhere. And so Doctor Who went f- within five weeks from being a show that no one had heard of to being the most important thing in England for this in NT63, uh, which set massive expectations on the show and really changed what the show was intended to be. The show becomes very different. So we're going to watch a piece where the show was meant to be one thing. It's going to become a very different thing, but a lot of that very different thing also is in that chunk of lost episodes. So We can't really watch the transition, unfortunately.
1: And one of the other things to point out is that it was expected not to succeed. So they had a budget built for people that were not expected to succeed. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I want to establish that from the beginning. The show was always underfunded. Yeah.
0: I also kind of want to talk about uh, The Elephant
1: in the Room. This is a segment that sadly comes up uh, too often. Before uh, that, yeah. I would like to touch on that William Hartnell, William Hartnell was not their first choice for The Doctor. He was, in no. fact, I want to say like choice five or six because a lot of the established actors they tried to get didn't want to be associated with with a science fiction tv show and they said right I, I i would pass on that th- opportunity thank, thank you very much
0: well that's let's say. so william hartnell actually um was primarily known for playing kind of gruff military types and so um he was not their first choice for a kind of grandfatherly character but it was something he wanted to move into uh because he wanted to kind of he was getting old. he was getting on in years, and he wanted to find he wanted to soften his image as an actor uh, at, at his, in his later career, which is an understandable move. There are allegations that William Harton was a bigot. We're in weird territory here because this is functionally sixty year old gossip at this point, and we don't have a lot of facts. Uh, so, the two main incidents that people have pointed to historically. One is that he did not act on the same screen with black actors. Uh, And two was that he uh, melted down to a director um, who was both homosexual and Jewish and used slurs in that meltdown. Of the surviving actors from that era, uh, one of them, Annika Wilkie, uh, who plays Polly, Um, is the one who originally brought some of this stuff to light, but most of it came from the BBC around the time that Hartnell was being fired. So there is a narrative that a lot of this was maybe trumped up to uh, cast Hartnell in a bad light to sell Troughton better when he was being positioned. And also related to that, um, there are things like we don't know about why he wasn't on screen with black actors, but also it could have very well been a scripting thing for all we know, right? Uh, we don't know if that was an intentional choice, but I will say like most television shows, particularly this show scripts were often rewritten the day of shooting. So it is entirely possible that Hartnell may have leveraged his ability to get a script rewritten so that he would not be on screen with those characters. We don't know. As for the meltdown, uh, that is a director that he has worked with before and after the incident. So indicates that it was probably not a personal situation and again the surviving actors have all said that uh, Hartnell has never used that language around them but as we've talked about before people who are in positions of power don't necessarily see these kinds of outrages or are willfully or unintentionally blind to them so at the end of the day I just want to make sure that we recognize that it that information is out there if you run if you do some research we have looked into it as best we can, um, but we're looking at 60-year-old information. Most of the people involved are are dead or have developed their own narratives about it and come to understand those narratives. Given the diverse way the show is put together, um, if he was a bigot, it would have been very hard for him, but we also know that it was very hard for him. So how much of that was self-inflicted? How much of that is, is unintentional? We just don't know. So. I don't have a solid answer for you, but I wanted to lay out all the facts as we have them and all the cases so that people can make their own decisions.
1: I also believe there was comments from Nicholas Courtney and some other people that originally reinforced it and then later softened it. So it is, it is hard to say with absolute certainty, but there is a lot of information that people want to go and research it. themselves.
0: yes. Uh, Annika Wookie specifically, she was very kind of, uh, vocal about it um, because how she was treated as Polly, she felt like um, she was treated very badly uh, both by her and to a degree by Troughton but um, she did have a conversation with Troughton before Troughton passed and has since walked a lot of that back um, and said that she was very young and perhaps misunderstood the situations she did not have a commiserate conversation with Hartnell so we don't know if that would have changed her opinion of Hartnell at all but she's walked back collectively over the years those stances. And again, Nicholas Courtney has also uh, softened his stance uh, on a lot of things. So we can't say. Sadly, I will say going forward, there's a later moment where um, it's going to be pretty clear what happens and it's going to be not great, but we're not there yet.
1: (laughs) And one of the other things to really keep in mind when you're thinking about all this is that power dictates how the story works out. So if Hartnell was it is unlikely any of the cast or people around him would have had enough influence to say anything. And so they likely would have kept to themselves to be able to make ensure whatever career they could have would be as successful as possible. Right. And people have a tendency when someone is dying to be more forgiving and try to soften the memory of that person for others. So all of that is context to keep in mind as we discuss this. Yes. Um, We will
0: probably never know for certain at this point. But... One thing that's interesting, going back to my point earlier about how this is both extremely prescient and uh, extremely weird at the same time, um, when we go through, even the first episode, we're going to see a lot of Doctor Who that is very much as we understand Doctor Who. And there's a lot of stuff that's going to be very different, but there's some nuances that are also lost when we're this. And one thing I want to point out, when I mention Hartnell never played the first Doctor, Hartnell played Time Lord,
1: Hartnell was not the lead in the show initially as designed before we go there i want to step back for where we were and make a specific point so people don't think that we're skipping over it but the doctor who has a history of racism and sexism embedded into it and that is not something that no matter how much we may love it we have to put up front and i want to make sure that it's here before we get into more about who the actual lead of the doctor doctor show is
0: Oh, and, no, I was just, uh, it's, it's good to bring it up. I was just going to mention that um, uh, uh, William Russell, who played Ian Chester, was originally positioned to be the lead, but... Well, it's because he's Lancelot. Hartnell, Hartnell how, the how would you not
1: want Lancelot to be your lead?
0: Right, right, right. But but uh, Hartnell was also, was a get from their perspective, right? From the, at the time period, he was an extremely well-known actor. Um, it would be like having Derek Jacoby now playing the Doctor, right? Uh, so... Even if he's not written as the lead, not presented as the lead, he's still an actor with a a tremendous amount of influence. So he did have a same amount of power. But, so I want to bring that part up, but also just embed it from a structural standpoint, but you're right. Um, This is a show that has a lot of problems, a lot of fronts. Um, It has had uh, creators, sadly even up to recently, um, have come up with problematic viewpoints. Uh, Gareth Roberts who wrote a few episodes on the new version um, has turned Mm -hmm. out to be massively transphobic, which is sad because he's written some fantastic stuff, but Fucking bigot but that doesn't change the fact that also there have been forces inside doctor who from day one that have worked hard against that and we're going to see going through this that unlike other shows we've been like yes, this is a problem this is a show that's constantly be at war with those instincts and it's going to be interesting to kind of pull those apart at moments to say okay yes there's this but also there's that and you can see it even on the screen of like this is a show that's pulling in some different directions at times and sometimes those directions are really bad and have aged very poorly and sometimes it's like wow I can't believe they did that in X year mm-hmm. so I think it's all the perfect stuff I, need, I had Is there anything else you want to talk about as a show as a whole
1: I'm not willing to let the isms go quite yet because okay, to this up to this point in time Doctor Who has yet to treat a black character or primarily any dark skinned character properly You can follow the story of the companions who there are a scant few uh, black companions at all. And Mm -hmm. I want to make that point from the origin of the show in 1963 to uh, now in 2023, it is still not done that yet. On TV. This is the only caveat I would give you
0: Uh, because I found out recently, weirdly enough, the fourth doctor had a black companion in the comics for a fairly significant run. (laughs)
1: And I, I, even as a comic book reader, will say, Yay, but then I, as a person but in right. media, will go, It's a comic book. No, and yeah,
0: it's it, it's it's spinoff material. You're right. I, I I recognize completely that. But again, that goes back to the thing it's it's warring with, right? Is that there are other people creators who clearly are trying to push the envelope but only have so far they can go because of the people in power.
1: Funnily enough that you say that, because literally last night with my daughter I had a conversation. While I was trying to pick a book for her to read. I wanted to read her Tristan Strong and she was like i don't want to read that big book but then i asked well why don't you want to read this novel when you read stuff like percy jackson and so forth and so on well she's like those two have movies about them and i can see the movies which goes and reinforces how important it is to see representation of yourself yeah. on television yeah absolutely, and media well, right there i agree and i just want to I'm not going to beat that horse this episode, but it is something that is going to be a recurring theme. And I want to make sure that people see it now. And I can talk about the sexism that they'll bring in with incredible characters like Liz Shaw and completely undercut Liz at every single opportunity and other characters.
0: Yeah, no, I, it, it's, it's good to do a preface now because it's something we're going to touch on. You're right, but it's better to kind of do that more situationally going forward. Mm-hmm. We're going to have another big conversation when we get to John Nathan Turner. But we'll save that for when we get John Nathan Turner, because that's a whole lot to unpack.
1: But if you're ready to to jump into the show proper, I can I can mount up my horse with Lancelot and ride into it.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) if anyone does listeners what that reference is,
1: (laughs) if anyone doesn't know, the actor that plays Ian was in a popular television show where he played Lancelot as a hero running around doing cool stuff. And this was a show that he then got to move into. While we're talking about the cast, I do want to take one more beat to talk about the actress who plays Barbara and no, I'm how
0: important... Oh, not Carol, uh, uh, Jacqueline no, uh, Hill. No, that's Yeah, Jacqueline
1: Hill. To talk about Jacqueline Hill because for all of you James Bond fans out there, she is the reason that James Bond is so successful. Did you know this oh. bit? No, I didn't. Is that uh, it was like a boxer movie and she recommended a a cute young actor that she saw to, to lead that movie instead of so the other actor they had, you may know him as a little, act, he was an actor that went by the name of Sean Connery. And oh, that is wow. when Sean Connery popped. And it is all because of her. Yeah, she is fantastic in a lot of ways. So if you like James Bond, you can thank Doctor Who for that.
0: And, and that's honestly, I mean, a version of John Ruless could have been, let's track Doctor Who from 1963 to now, and then take a beat and look at all the shows that spun off and related to and connect to it. Because if you want to look at a spine of British media from the 20th century, Doctor Who is as good a lens as any because it's it's weirdly connected to a lot of things. Yeah, and I think it's kind of the big point that it's worth talking uh, because uh, obviously, as you can tell, we're both uh, Americans uh, talking about this. We're coming at this from a perspective. We get. We have gotten this. At least Chris and I got this um, as a cult television show, right? It's something that was on PBS. Um, Not many people were watching it. Uh, uh, I at least was made fun of at school for being a Doctor Who fan uh, because it was a weird British thing that nobody else watched. Why didn't you watch good good shows like Star Trek? You know that kind of thing. Um, It's like I also watch Star Trek, but Doctor Who is not popular culture in england it is culture uh it is uh, the only analogy i could think of is star trek next generation in the 90s start or
1: which i didn't watch uh,
0: well, sure but you knew about it you knew, you, people were talking about it um or game of thrones a few years ago right it, where a genre show dominates the culture doctor who was on that level for a lot of it's run in, in, in England or in the UK. Uh, so it's it's kind of a weird case because all the way it's structured, all the way it looks, it feels like, like the kind of shows we tend to cover on here. You know, it, it's, it's it's in the same basket in a lot of ways as Prescott County Jr., right? It, it's, it's the show that Americans for a long time, only a few devoted hardcore people really watched. Now today in 2023, Doctor Who is, is a global phenomenon. And so it's, it's, it's weird to kind of unpack the, the, the uh, structure it's going for here. So that's why I'm trying to kind of give some context for this is a small show that suddenly became big um, and it was meant to be kind of a weird educational thing. And it was not. It, it looks very similar to the shows you watch now, but also it was never meant to be the show it became.
1: I think for me, I, that's a good point to bring up, because if, if people don't know, on the Patreon, we did one Doctor Who episode. And so I think we touched on our own histories with Doctor Who. It may be a good thing. I know this may be a long episode now, but to talk about how each of us sort of encountered Doctor Who and what, okay. we, did, what we did to try to keep up with that during the, uh, the dark years.
0: yeah, uh, Yes, the wilderness years. So, uh, like I said, um, I came through it through uh, PBS. Um, my mom uh, was born in England. That's one of the reasons why I'm a British citizen now. And so she was born and grew up during this era of Doctor Who, actually. this was in a lot of ways her doctor um what was the kind of uh, uh hartnell troughton era and when she noticed that there was doctor who on in america she started watching it and i started watching it um and so uh in the early 80s that would have been reruns of tom baker uh because they were about five years behind uh the british uh production um but the the teenage boy sweet spot that doctor a teenage person i should say um but uh, at the time it was generally boys who got gravitated doctor who there's a there's a moment where it clicks that's what we kind of call your doctor it was for me it was sylvester mccoy that's when they started doing some sequoia episodes about a month after they were uh, broadcast in the uk um and sylvester mccoy was definitely the doctor i clicked with on that level i still love uh tom baker tom baker still one of my favorites um but there's a, a, a different kind of this was the, the to my mind the current doctor i felt like i was up to date i wasn't watching reruns of an old show i was watching a, a at the time modern show to me and that sat in my brain in a way that never completely
1: dislodged so how about you so for me i didn't know about doctor who until i was in Boy Scouts. Uh, for anyone that's curious, yes, I, I've enjoyed Boy Scouts for a while. I've done all sorts of goofy things nice. I sometimes regret. But I was at a Boy Scout camp, and I had met some friends, and we're all hanging out. And, God, we're around, what, 12? And one of them said, hey, I'm watching this great show called Doctor Who, and I've got some tapes of it. And they lived maybe like a quarter of a mile from where the camp was. Mm-hmm. And we're all like, what? And he's like, yeah. And so we snuck out of camp, out of a Boy Scout camp. It was like <laughs> a jailbreak. To go to this kid's house that we had all known for maybe a week. So think (laughs) about that when you send your kids off to camp (laughs) to hide in his basement and watch Remembrance of the Daleks. And that's why I remember that episode so well Yeah, is like that is the one that we watched in the dark, like the four of us and like the screen flickering and everything else. And I loved it. Like that moment of discovering something I'd never seen before. And then when we came back, we talked about it for the rest of camp. And when I went home, I had to spend a month trying to find out how I could see the show to discover that it airs on PBS, but it airs on PBS Saturday nights from nine 38 until what was it like eleven eighteen? Really? So regardless of how long the episode is, that's all you get. What? So it, Yes, I was watching episodes. Sometimes it would just boop, cut off. Wow. Because this is in Alabama, and that's what we do in Alabama. And I would then have to try to find ways to watch the episodes. And during the wilderness years, this is back before the, the Internet was a huge thing, because that's how old yep. I am. I was having to try to track down the novels, and they came out from overseas, sometimes paying double the price to get the book so I could read it. New adventures. And I have an entire collection of them, every single book up to a certain, like all the seven doctor books and everything else that came out for that window of time. And I've had it since I was a teenager or early 20s. I don't want to let you know too much. And every time I moved, I picked up that box because they're all in the box. They go on the bookshelf. When I move, I put them back in that box. And my wife has asked me repeatedly, why don't you just donate those? And I pull my gullum and go, my precious, my precious, <laughs> never, never. I will I'll donate other books, but I will never get rid of those. I even have VHS tapes upstairs in my home that I recorded from 1980 and 1990 of episodes I now own on digital because of the memories I have when I recorded and watched it. Uh,
0: So sadly, most of my... Treasures have been lost to time. Although I have actually found now that I'm in the UK, I can get uh, some of those books relatively cheaply on eBay now. So I've got I started about a few of them. Um, but I did not live at a time where my family owned a, a VCR or could afford that. So for a long time, what I would do is I'll record them on audio tape. So I had audio <laughs> versions of a lot of the episodes. Uh, so like I have weird moments where like I'll watch an episode and I don't recognize what's on tv but a piece of music or a line will be will be etched into my head because i have listened to it so much um so it's it's a weird kind of sense memory for me uh but yes i also read the uh um the the new doctor adventures which were again weird thing where uh, virgin publishing after the show's canceled uh got the rights to doctor who and were of explicitly uh, said they were the continuation of the show mm-hmm. um and they did a uh, explicitly adult versions of Doctor Who, which every positive and negative connotation of the word adult you could possibly think of, it had. Yep. I am rereading Transit right now, which is Doctor Who beats 90s cyberpunk, which is both amazing and terrible because it's Doctor Who with sex scenes, and I just don't know how I feel about that.
1: And Ace grows up in them. It is It is yeah. a lot. Right. And that's where we get the joy of Benny Somerville, oh, who is a brilliant character. And for anyone that's curious, if you listen to the audio recordings of it, Benny is played by the actress who played the cheetah person in Survival. Mm -hmm. Lisa Bauman, I think. And she's actually now a a producer, too. So she actually uh, produces some
0: audio dramas as well. Awesome.
1: But I figure we'll continue to drop snippets of our love of food. But I figured we should at least give this official first episode of Doctor Who for the public, and not one right. that people have joined the disc join the Patreon for some yeah. of our history. And this is more history, I think, than we might have given on that.
0: Yeah, you, and you're sensing a bias in our, our interests. Um, but we're, we're several gener- re- generations from that we're still back. We're now in an era where, from my personal viewpoint, I first watched these episodes, maybe five years ago. So this is probably actually really the mo- more recent Doctor Who for me, of all of these we're going to watch.
1: Wow. I have not watched Hartnell no, since I saw it the first time way back when. I've watched The Unearthly Child a couple times, but not The Daleks. So uh, yeah. that was. I uh, will get there. But if, we'll if there. you'd so, like to, to give a synopsis so we get started now that we're like, what, 40 yeah, so minutes? Yes, let's start with The Unearthly episode. Child. Very first episode,
0: episode one, season one of Doctor Who. At Cole Hill School, teachers Ian Chesterton, played by William Russell, and Barbara Wright, played by Jacqueline Hill, have concerns about pupil Susan Foreman, who is played by Carol Ann Ford. She has an alien outlook on England. When teachers visit her address to investigate, they encounter a police box and hear Susan's voice inside. An elderly man, played by William Hartnell, arrives and refuses to let the teachers inside the police box. They force their way in to find Susan in a technologically advanced control room that's larger than a police box exterior. Susan explains that the object is a time and space machine called the TARDIS and the old man is her grandfather, who reveals that he and his daughter are exiles from their own planet. Refusing to let Ian and Barbara leave, he sets the TARDIS in flight. That's it. That's the first 23 minutes of Doctor Who. And on the one hand, a lot of what we know as Doctor Who gets established right here, day one. Doctor Who's an alien. He has a TARDIS. It looks like a phone box. He has companions. He goes through time and space. He only has the name of the Doctor. And more interesting for probably you and me, he's kind of a manipulative bastard right out the game. <laughs>
1: Well, it holds up to the ethos and is even current day, the doctor lies. Yeah, yeah. It I have was an incredibly important question for you, though, before you go here, into this, what? since you mentioned it. Is it time and relative dimension in space, or is it time and relative dimensions in space? Singular. I, I I don't know why, but it is. <laughs> I no event. Eventually another companion will say dimensions and then becomes a whole internet right. argument about which one it is. Which right. do you prefer and why?
0: Oh, I I, I uh, prefer the singor because it makes less sense. <sighs> and anything that makes doctor makes less sense weirdly works for me because this show is basically nonsense.
1: Ridiculous. But you're saying.
0: <laughs> but I mean that's a I mean, look at this show, right? Like, like so the, the very first episode. It's about two school teachers who follow a weird alien student into a magical box that then goes back in time. It's not hard sci-fi, but any stretch of the imagination.
1: It would, it would almost be like uh, Narnia, you know, where these yeah. kids enter a, a cupboard and go into a magical land. There's a whole tradition of
0: British fantasy of people going into a magical land through a, a portal or a, a box or whatever. Yeah, so I mean this is right up there with, with C.S. Lewis in a lot of ways, which makes it in a way very distinctly British. Looking at the episode, trying to, to you know look, look at it from a not a, a contemporary perspective, but at least just kind of trying to look at it without all the knowledge we have, Doctor, which is very, 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 very hard to do. This show is—it's weird. Like the TARDIS is the first character we see, and that's it's interesting, part one. right? And it's like it, it's not—you know—what we would now believe to be the lead, William Hartnell. We don't see for half the episode.
1: To to the TARDIS. Do you remember some? Do you know about any of the conversations they had about what it should be, the ship? No they had all these different ideas. One of them that I personally loved is someone thought the ship should be invisible. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, there's no way we could do that. That is the most ridiculous thing ever because they were concerned about budget. (laughs) Yeah. And someone's like, it should be a shape shifting thing that does all these things. And there were so many people that added to Dr. Who in bits as it was coming out, like massive people that who we barely remember the names of now. And it took all little pieces of the ideas and information they gave them to come up with this and so they took someone's idea about it shape-shifting as part of a story beat someone else's idea is that it should be something that is contemporary of the time that would be cheap which is a police box so that's why the tardis is a has a chameleon circuit but the chameleon circuit this is using future techn- terminology, is broken right. so it doesn't work so you have right. all that with it but you also have it be a static prop that is cheap and everyone sees it and it blends in right
0: and actually, this episode is a really good example of, of that simultaneous – I can talk about how it's, it's both aged badly and aged weirdly well to the point where one scene actually has a completely different meaning now because they're, they're um, you have Ian and Barbara are talking about this strange student they have and all the weird concepts she has. And one of the comments she makes is like, I don't know how to do the money and say, oh, you don't have decimalized currency yet. Now. In 2023, England had decimalized currency for decades, but they didn't officially decimalize till 1970, seven years after this episode. So it was, it was entirely possible that England would never have decimalized currency, and that scene would have been false. But it happens that the writers predicted that
1: trend exactly right. And can for anyone that's curious, Susan is not played by teenager uh, Susan. Uh, I think at the time, she was in her early 20s. Uh, Car- Carolyn Ford was in her early 20s and had a kid and all this other stuff. So it, it is following that same model is that teenagers are played by adults. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think she was not that much younger than Liam Russell or Jaclyn Hill, honestly. But a, a lot of the episode, again, like, the structure – from day one is who is the doctor? Well, what is this, this strange person? Because a lot of the first half of the episode is just trying to figure out, well, really who uh, Susan is, but through her then who the doctor is. It was just a strange kind of alien person. And, and, they have, and so they stalk her, which doesn't play well at all. These days, like, know, we're just gonna follow this teenage girl back to where she lives. That's not creepy at all. <laughs>
1: And nowadays, when you talk about Ian and Barbara, we as, we assume they were in a relationship when this started. And watching this first episode, they are very clearly just friends that are teachers and yeah. work in a school, and that mm-hmm. is exceptional, especially yeah. given the time and everything else. Very nicely done.
0: And also, there's this 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 trope that is is mostly deserved of uh, uh, the doctor has a single female companion, and she is kind of vapid or bland or otherwise not as up to speed as the doctor is as uh, is the person going to ask the doctor questions um and that is not all the dynamic we have here at all uh, the, there are two women on the show and both of them are extremely intelligent there is the the uh the women need to ask the men questions dynamic is not at all present in in, in this, this part of the show um Granted, when it comes to science stuff, obviously Ian knows more, but he's a science teacher. Of course he knows more. But when it comes to the historical stuff, Barbara is on it. Uh, she is as knowledgeable as a 1963 woman historian could be at that time. Uh, and of course Susan is very intelligent in very specific ways, um, which is part of the, the ongoing mystery. Um, so it, it, it's fascinating that the, the female peril monkey isn't quite a trope yet. That was not where the show was intended to go.
1: And I also heard there was an unaired pilot version of this where. There is, which I've William watched. William Hartnell is, he? he's, the character is always shady is the best way to put it. But in the unaired pilot version, he is sinister, shady compared to manipulative. And I'm never going to say kind. William Hartnell is never warm or kind as the first no. doctor.
0: It, it, and In this episode, he's brisk but there's moments of, of, of humanity. Uh, the unaired episode, it actually works better if you think William Hartnell's playing the master. It's, it's that bad, right?
1: Um, he, he's, he's just a jerk. And... Do you know when Lost in Space aired?
0: I don't. I think it's because actresses.
1: The more I think about it, Dr. Smith, in that original version of William Hartnell, If you watch the first Lawson's bases are very similar. What's that? 65. So yeah, after this, so they probably base their Dr. Smith on Dr. Who, but yeah, like those two stick in my head whenever I watch it. And weird, weird digression here. Our conception of
0: how the doctor is played does not come from William Hartnell. Uh, It actually comes from the two Dr. Who movies that came out in 1963 and 64. Because Dalek Mania was so popular, they actually made two Doctor Who movies. Now, canonically, the movies are nonsense, right? Um, the, the Doctor is explicitly human. He is a human inventor who's made a time machine. His, Susan is now like 10. Ian is an idiot. Um, and how the Daleks work, it just, it's just rubbish. But he is absolutely the charismatic lead character that we expect from a high quality color movie from the 1960s and that was so popular they ended up influencing the tv show again so lost in space is probably kind of this this further the movies were popular they probably took a version of that and said let's make it let's make the doctor like this but you know slightly crankier which ends up accidentally landing exactly on william hartnell right
1: <laughs> did you know though that the that those Doctor Who movies are part of the Star Wars canon because the Doctor eventually goes back to Earth, travels in the travels, and then loses his TARDIS and joins the Empire and has a face off with Lord Vader.
0: Has a has a horrible career choice.
1: <laughs> and so, for anyone that's curious and you don't have the time to go look, it is uh the same actor plays the Doctor that plays in Star Wars movie. Uh, yeah, uh, I forget his name right. I guess. But anyway, so uh, I'm going to kind of jump to the
0: second half of this because um, we, we, we've kind of talked about the first half and also the crankiness we see pr- primarily in the uh, conversation with uh, Ian and the Doctor which sets up a dynamic of the Ian and the Doctor fight. Um, and that's doesn't last very long but is present because the original idea was that, again, Ian is the lead. He's the person who's saying the things that the audience expect to hear. Um, and Barbara supports him. And the Doctor is just kind of this person that Drags them through time and space to deal with horrifying things, and that's it, I mean, that's an interesting point, right? Like the idea of adventuring a doctor is fun is not present in the early no era at all. It's a horrifying, terrible experience. It's not until we get to Ben and Polly really that we start acting, oh, actually, this is kind of fun to do.
1: Well, I, I agree with you, and I'm, I'm laughing because of how much I agree with you. Because one of the first things that they do bring up that I like. <clears throat> is that both Ian and Barbara go, is there food here to eat? Like, that is (laughs) a solid concern. We're stuck on your ship. Are we going to starve to death? So, like, that is solid thinking and, like, going through the beats for it.
0: Yeah, which, A, shows that these companions are very intelligent, but B, is survival horror structure, right? It's the, let's talk about food, let's talk about air, and those are two conversations they have about this ship. (laughs) How do we breathe? How do we eat? No one has asked that question In the last fifty years of Doctor Who, but Ian and Barbara are like, (laughs) which button do we push to get a to get a bar that tastes like bacon and eggs?
1: And it is interesting though, if you watch the dynamic, while Ian is definitely a more physical character, and is and for at least for the Unearthly Child is imposing and intimidating the Doctor throughout the course of that show, Mm -hmm. first episode, yeah, and that is not something that we generally see at all in modern Doctor. The doctor is never like, I don't want to say cowering, but somewhat subservient to someone else. Yeah. He's always yeah. they're always flippant or making a quip about something. Right. To offset that.
0: Uh I've I the term leading man, and that's really kind of what we're talking about here. Because leading man is a specific archetype in media. It, it it's it's you could argue that it's now leading actor leading leading character but really the leading man archetype has really diminished in modern television Um, but the idea is that the whole narrative centered around one character who is usually a man because that's how these things go and the show is centered around them once you know how the camera works and the writing works around the leading man archetype and, and for american examples there's lots of them, but things like Magnum PI or um, Knight Rider, uh, things like that. I mean, there's lots of media you can look to where it has a strong leading man archetype. There are shows like Columbo that intentionally subvert and disenfranchise that archetype to, to, to for interesting narrative structure. Rockford Files to a certain level as well, but it's pretty common to see this this structure. Can you talk about watching mysteries lately? Um, but you can see the structure a lot. But if you know what to look for, Ian is the leading man
1: in this episode. Very, very clearly. He's one of the first characters speaking. Oh, yeah, go ahead. If you're watching your mysteries right now, and we're not saying we're going to do a mystery season, people. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Mm -hmm. If you go back and watch the James Garner Marlowe, like where he plays Philip Marlowe, it plays Mm -hmm. and he acts just like... Rockford throughout the entire thing, <laughs> so it, it is basically an extension of the Rockford Files. He did that before he did the Rockford Files, and That's in amazing. case people are curious, maybe I'm watching Mysteries too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. So I mean, so from that perspective, he, William Hartnell's playing kind of the antagonist. He is the Doctor Smith. You know, he is the um sinister science support character that we do see in a fair amount of sci-fi. His role is not to lead the show. And it's interesting how this show has so much in place of the show we recognize, and yet it's off in weird ways until you kind of break it down. Why does this show feel a bit weird beyond being just slow-paced 60s television? And that's one of them, is that the Doctor is not the person we should be following. It really should be Ian.
1: (laughs) is there anything else you want to go over for the first, for this twenty thir- no, three minutes of TV?
0: <laughs> I, I, I think that's it. Uh, we do skip over the next three episodes because it's basically the doctor runs into some cavemen and is a complete asshole to Ian for three episodes. And then we move to the Daleks.
1: And do you want to mention how he tried, he
0: almost kills someone until Ian stops him. He almost, yeah, he almost murders someone. Uh, uh, and when Ian stops him, he tries to murder them again. So not great for the doctor right now. So, Uh, We just skip ahead to the Daleks, which is episode five, uh, and it covers the next seven episodes. I'm just going to do it all in one chunk because there's about 90 minutes of episodes here.
1: But I want (laughs) to spend 30 minutes discussing when they transverse underground. And Ian in that rope scene, it's going to be 10 minutes of content. Sorry, go
0: ahead. Uh, Not for me, it's not. The TARDIS lands in a petrified jungle where the first doctor tries to determine their position by taking a reading of the stars. He insists they explore a futuristic city they spot beyond the forest, but Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright are not convinced. In the forest, someone touches Susan's shoulder. The Doctor does not believe her. Later, a box of vials is found outside the TARDIS. Doctor claims the fluid link in the TARDIS is running low on mercury, a ruse he later admits to, forcing the crew to travel the city in search of more mercury. Barbara becomes separated from her colleagues in the city and is threatened by an unseen creature with a metal arm. Before long, the entire crew is captured by unseen creatures operating tank-like machines known as the Daleks. Susan is eventually sent to retrieve anti-radiation drugs from the TARDIS after the doctor realizes this is what the box contains. Susan encounters a second species known as the Thals who used to be at war with the The Thal who left the drugs reveals he encountered her in the forest. Susan attempts to broker peace between the two groups and while it appears to work, the Daleks eventually betray the Thals, opening fire on them. It was supposed to be a peaceful exchange of food. Daleks' attempt using the anti-radiation drugs discover they are fatal to Daleks. They conclude the Daleks need radiation to survive and decide to bombard the atmosphere with more radiation, because that's what you do. In the ensuing chaos, the Doctor and his companions escape with the Thals and learn their version of history from the planet. They also learn that the Thals are avowed pacifists. They are unable to leave Scarrow, however, as the fluid link has been taken by the Daleks. In order to save them from the Daleks, the TARDIS crew convinces the Thalves of the importance of aggression and warfare, and manages to lead the Thalves in a successful attack against the Daleks. At the end, it is believed the Dalek race has been destroyed when their power supply is knocked out. The TARDIS crew leaves Scarrow, but an explosion in the TARDIS knocks them out. So to summarize, the reason why the Daleks exist is because the Doctor fucked around and found out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, am I wrong?
1: <laughs> no, no, you're not. But that that could be an explanation for every single episode of Doctor Who.
0: Well, true. But, I mean, that's why I come on the frame, the, the the leading man thing, is because the Doctor's actions make no sense if he is the main character.
1: A, a structural question for us that will impact our listeners going okay. forward. Mm-hmm. Do we want to, A, make them kind of how we do our movie synopsis? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to do the going forward more like we do a normal television show? I'm asking specifically because if we were, say, to choose a Trouton episode, we'll say War Games that has 10 episodes in it. Do we want to do each individual episode or do we want one larger synopsis? Because depending on which route we go, if people have listened to all of our stuff, know that we it, Im- it influences how we discuss what we're discussing.
0: I think I think the middle ground is probably doing like we do movies where we have one big stop but we stop and talk about a chunk of it. I blew through this one because this is yes, it's an extremely iconic set of seven episodes, but also it's very much an example of early 60s BBC television figure out how pasting works, i.e. it doesn't. So I felt like we're not going to you may have 10 minutes out of Ian trying to jump over a gorge that's obviously two feet across, but man, I am not going to get that much content out of that scene.
1: <sighs> no, that, that was my joke because of that. <laughs> or I think when he throws a rope and hits someone in the face with it, so it's... Right. Or, or 20 minutes of, forward, of 20 minutes wh- as soon as
0: you're going through the jungle trying to find a blue box in a
1: green jungle. <laughs> Okay, I, I can agree to do the the movie format where we have everything down. So, folks, okay. we we stick to our our principle in the first episode. We'll discuss anything live on air, and we'll figure <laughs> out everything as we do it. Right, because we do nothing. I but know why we work. do live episodes? Because our
0: live episodes are exactly like a recorded episodes.
1: <laughs> well, occasionally now, since we have more, have at least twenty listeners, someone will come in and they'll give us additional comment back and forth, and that is a lot of fun. True, true. That is true. That's a fair point.
0: But I mean, yeah, so like, again, one of the things that early Doctor Who does that in a way I like conceptually, but don't like to actually watch is the first episode of the serial is usually exploring their environment. And I think it's conceptually a cool idea, but let's let's talk about this alien environment and let's, 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 let's really dig into this culture that we've created for this episode. But to watch it for 22 minutes is not really very exciting. And this show, this kind of, this, like we don't, we see a bit of a dalek at the end of episode one, and the rest of it is just going through
1: awkwardly designed corridors. But well, we have to view it if we view it from the context of being in 1963 or four when this aired. That is phenomenal because sure. television wasn't a huge thing, and if anything, because you also have from this is 63, World War Two ended less than two decades ago, mm-hmm. and most of the television and radio and everything then were used to provide news about the war and we're transitioning that which we talked about at the start of the show from being that focus to more entertainment and how mm-hmm. many people really had televisions and so you are doing you basically you're bringing magic into people's homes right now right. you you could have them walk back and forth on a treadmill for 23 minutes and people would be fucking fascinated in 1963.
0: But I mean you bring up a good point like these are people who a lot of television are things like documentaries and plays. So this is obviously much more ambitious than a play. There's much more than the stage here. And so it's structured like, doc, it's a documentary of a fictional space. We're going to document the exploration of this fictional space. That, that is very much how people watch television back then. So you're right, for them, this would have been gripping and engaging because they had no clue what to expect. I mean, last week there were fighting off cavemen and trying to break open their heads with rocks. And now we're in this radiated planets, um, with metal floors. I mean, so it's, 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 it's hard to watch with modern sensibilities, but it's also hard to express how we can't watch that show again. Cause it doesn't exist. Cause we just don't, we're not the kind of viewers who can appreciate that anymore.
1: And taking into account that when the actors did that, they did it like it was a play. It was not like modern time where they would stop and take breaks and everything else. They would run through the whole script unless something yep. horribly egregious happened. That's for instance yep. one of the things when we talk about the uh anti-radiation drugs, you'll see Hartnell says something I like anti-radiation gloves and everyone yep. takes a beat. And then later he says drugs. Like that's not cut because that is live recorded for them. And it's
0: actually it's, it's it's so digression, but there's a fascinating rabbit hole of, of with what is known apparently on set as Billy fluffs, um, or William Hartner would fluff a line. Um, there's two paths to this. One is you are absolutely right. Editing was very rarely done. they, they, they filmed it much like live television and they would only go back and redo it if they absolutely had to cause film was super expensive and they just couldn't afford it. So you're right. They would, they would rehearse it two or three times and then shoot it once, maybe twice. And that was it. So there is very much a a live performance vibe, even though the sets are obviously much more ambitious than live. William Hartnell became notorious for flubbing his lines, partially because he was ill, and became increasingly ill during the course of tenure. One of the reasons why he was fired was because he had trouble remembering his lines. And for a character like The Doctor, that's a really hard thing to have because it's a lot of techno babble, and as he became increasingly a leading man, he also increasingly got much more complicated dialogue, which he was increasingly less suited to do. What's fascinating, though, is that around season two, we, we've, we've uh, over time gotten scripts, original scripts from the time. Some of those are actually in the script. <laughs> like the, there's a gag that we don't get to see much of, um, but uh, where he keeps getting Ian's last name wrong. Uh, Chesterton, Chatterton, uh Chitterden, And initially it was because William Hartnell forgot the character's name, but over time it actually is written into the script. To the point where when I watch this on Amazon Prime, the flubs are actually in the subtitles. (laughs) And I'm like, that's, I don't know if that's, you give the word, but like, do we need to document that? I don't know. Because on the one hand, are we documenting an old man's mental decline on television? And on the other hand, it's now intentionally a character trait. It's It's a fascinating, weird little rabbit hole of Doctor Who.
1: And there's also a point that I wanna—I forgot which episode it was, but for Hartnell, there was one where he wanted to ensure there was more history in it for kids, and there was a, a scene where he just made up a bunch of history about a historical event to keep the historical context content because it was so vital for the network. The history is still a part of it, so they received funding and everything else, and he just made it up on the spot.
0: Oh, my God.
1: That, that sounds exactly like it. It's, it's a fascinating era of television. But if we want to talk about the, the, the low Mercury, Jesus.
0: Right, so, okay, here's the doctor. First of all, the fact that the TARDIS runs on Mercury is just amazing, and I will, I will brook no complaints about that. Um, of course it does. It, it just does. Uh, it makes no sense. But the doctor's plan is he's going to sabotage the ship, gets caught sabotaging the ship, they say, "Please don't sabotage the ship." He goes, "Okay, I won't sabotage the ship." The second their back is turned, he then sabotages the ship, <laughs> and then leaves, and then goes, "Oops! By the way, I accidentally sabotaged the ship." Hey, maybe we should go back to the ship so we can not have it not be sabotaged. Oh, by the way, I accidentally left the bit that was important with the Daleks, and that happens. The, the part with Daleks uh, uh, taken away from me is off screen. We don't even see that moment. He just kind of mentions, "Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention
1: that was taken away from me." So now we have to go back to the Daleks. That is Ian's fault because Ian is a person that said they take it off of him.
0: Okay, well, fair, but still. The Doctor's response to we need to get that back is let's weaponize the Thals. Let's make the pacifists into an army. <laughs> off
1: Offline, we personally have joked about this, but that is what the Doctor <laughs> does everywhere he goes. Usually, in more modern era, it is against an oppressive force. Right. Much like now, technically speaking. But... That the doctor comes in, he galvanizes people to go fight, so he himself does not fight because he is a pacifist. Eh, and everyone else goes and kills people for him. Right. Now,
0: he is accidentally correct because the Daleks turn out to actually be irradiated Nazis, but he doesn't know that when this happens.
1: <laughs> All right, He's no, just
0: annoyed that they have his thing so he can't go home his magic. Pot.
1: Let's let's go back beat by beat okay to inside the TARDIS we do have like that initial dynamic where the doctor wants to go and do something and everyone else says that is a horrible idea Yeah. and you get the deviousness of this anti-hero already that we have and mm-hmm. it's constantly reinforcing that throughout the show and you still see Ian's dynamic with the doctor is very strong and goes back and forth there out of the four main cast members just from a little bit we've seen, I think Susan's character suffers the most as the show continues to progress.
0: Yes. Susan very quickly becomes surplus to requirements. And it's pretty obvious, even at this early stage, that they just don't know what to do with Caroline Ford, which is a shame because she's clearly trying to do the best she can with the dialogue she has. Yes. Also, it's uh, oh, my brain just shut off. I don't know where I was going. With, oh, I remember really now we haven't talked much about the TARDIS control room, uh, but it's such a cool design. Like uh, uh, that control room has not fundamentally changed ever. It has a nice big console, has a, 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 a pillar in the center. The space inside of it has shrunk or grown, depending on how much studio space that they have and budget they have. But the big cavernous TARDIS interior, again, day one, You know, I mean, like now we have these huge, massive control rooms. And for people like me who grew up in kind of the late stage classic Dr. Who, it's like, no, console rooms, like a bedroom size, not, but but here it's, it's massive. This is a huge room.
1: I miss the roundels.
0: I know. Roundels are great. Oh man. I don't miss the food machine. Food machine can go. That's fine.
1: Or do you want to, I'm surprised that you didn't mention the alternate control room from baker's error
0: i love that room and then it got damaged and never got back
1: again so one of the things about not having our normal structure is we like to bounce around a lot more and this is our first episode of doctor who and regardless of how classic this episode is there's a lot of traveling in this episode and repeating some of the same beats so i feel that we're more inclined to be a lot more freeform than what we may be in future episodes where there's I can say more coherent plot, but there's a a more linear plot that's less focused on overcoming obstacles of terrain, uh, radiation, those sort of things.
0: Right. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine a modern day Russell T Davies episode that centers around static electricity as a major plot point. Right. <sighs> I mean, I, I kind of want to imagine that as an interesting challenge. But this, th- there's, there's like, oh, you know, they, they travel by static electricity because all the mores, okay, that's a cool moment. And then there's like an entire two or three episodes that hinge on that as a point. And it's just like, oh, okay. And um, we run into, one of the things that I like about the modern tertiary Doctor Who is the psychic paper and the sonic screwdriver because they eliminate a lot of what we go through in this episodes, which is the we have to show up, we have to establish our credentials, we get captured, we escape, we get captured, we escape, we get captured, we escape. And again, for people who have no clue what Doctor Who is, this is all fascinating, interesting stuff. For people who know what Doctor Who is, this is just going through the motions because it's the let's spend an episode planning our elaborate escape from the Daleks that lasts for about 10 minutes before we're captured again.
1: <laughs> but I, I, I know, but I'm going to go back to saying from the era it was made, because that is also one of the reasons yeah. why movies in the old days, I hate to use a reference point, but like Gone to the Wind is such a long ass epic because people would go to the theater and they would want to be there because when they go home, they we got a lot to do, unlike us now. So that's why these things lasted so long. And I think that's also why this is obnoxiously long. <laughs> I, sorry. I know it's a classic episode for people, but this is not one of my favorite episodes.
0: No, I mean this is this is the epitome of. I'm glad I watched it, but I did not necessarily enjoy watching it. Right? It's like yes, it's historical. A lot of steps here, and, and the moment they do, like there, I feel you can edit this down to like about 90 minutes and have a satisfying two parter in a roughly modern style, and not lose a whole lot.
1: One of the things that I did establish early on is that Doctor Who is horny, horny as fuck. <laughs> they are ready to get down. <laughs> Barbara and the thaw are right there. Is Barbara okay? How's Barbara doing? Well, oh, I can yeah. do your earth customs. Or we could go to another scene. Do you know that four years ago she was yet a girl, but now she is a woman? I did notice that. What? <laughs> what?
0: Yes. Yes. And you're right, because there's this weird thing to build up. Like the doctor doesn't have sex, and it's like, but but no, the show is actually weirdly horny. You just have to look in the right places for it.
1: And this show, it's not even all that hidden. <laughs> no, no, it's just poking in the eye. How's that for a bad joke early in the morning? <laughs> yeah.
0: But I mean, uh, digressing from that entirely, because I just don't want to go that one further. <laughs> um, but we haven't talked about the Daleks themselves, right? And it's like, it is stunning how the design has changed so little in 60 years. They, they got it right the first time. Just, boom, this the Dalek. And my argument is, I think one of the reasons why it's so popular is that it's, first of all, it's a very unusual shape. Like it's not a humanoid robot. So we have nothing to visually latch onto. So it, it reads alien. But also it is the kind of thing that kids could knock up in a playground in five minutes. And for a show that's also aimed at kids, having a monster that you can just throw a bin over you, hold a plunger and just run around chasing kids around the schoolyard is, is very important. It's, a, it's an important design consideration.
1: Now, if we're going to talk about the Daleks and be, have serious conversation, then it is a fascinating design that they use for it. And you have, you mentioned how it hasn't changed much over the decades is a tribute to if you have something that is just brilliant out of the box, there is no reason to fix it. And the few times they've mm-hmm. tried to change it, there's been such pushback that it goes back to how it was. We could talk about for the seventh doctor how they had the massive Dalek tank. We could talk about more current where they had the uh, rainbow Daleks. Great,
0: I, come on, especially Weapon Dalek is amazing.
1: <laughs> they had the rainbow Daleks and they got sort of shit canned, and so it is great. And one of the best things about it, though, is it is considered to still be scary by looking at it and even throughout the course of the show when it slowly evolves, like for the seventh doctor where it learns to fly is like a horrific yep. moment they put on screen. Yeah. That is just something that shouldn't be scary at all. And it gets kids like right there. Or when Eccleson first encounters a Dalek, he, the doctor has fear in his eyes and becomes ravenous to kill it. And one dialect exterminates an entire base of people by itself, because that is how powerful and scary a singular Dalek should be.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think this helps that – yes, unfortunately, uh, Barbara is the first person who's menaced by a Dalek and starting to establish the female companion as the peril monkey uh, problem. But to be fair, everyone on the cast is also scared of the Daleks. Uh, The Doctor in particular is terrified of these things, Um, and so it really helps to sell the, the fact that Daleks are scary because everyone's acting like they should be scared. Even when Ian is spending inexplicably twenty minutes climbing into a Dalek and running around,
1: but Barbara is also the person that comes up with a way for them to defeat the Dalek, which is yeah. also showing how ingenious she is as a character.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. All right, let's I'll, let's let's talk about Ian getting into the Dalek. Do you like the fact that they showed them scooping something out of it? in a I do like and that. putting it to the side. Like, that was awe. Oh. I, I think they did a really good
0: showing as little as possible with the monster thing, which is great. Um, and had nothing to do with the fact that they had no budget. It was totally for suspense purposes. But it's, it again, it's, it's this weird moment of like, yeah, if you're in that situation and you want to get around unobtrusively, you have to look like a Dalek, you better climb in. So I mean, I, that, that's what you would do. But it seems so weird to us now because it's not a thing you do in Doctor Who anymore. But at this moment, they didn't have the rules yet. They were still making it up. They never expect the Daleks to last more than these seven episodes. So it's like, yeah, sure, why not? I guess they climbed in there. Whatever. It's great.
1: The oh, the Daleks when they blast Ian and his legs stop working. Yep. That's I, a I, I see, right? just, just want to say it's a thing that happened.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, there are a lot of plot holes in this, but my favorite plot hole, uh, which we kind of glossed over a little bit, is um, Susan. They, they re, there's a bunch of vials left outside the TARDIS. They realize those are anti-radiation drugs. They send Susan back to get the anti-radiation drugs. She gets the anti-radiation drugs that were left by the Thals. And the Thals said, we have used these anti-radiation drugs and they work on us. And she goes, great, and goes back. N- ignoring the fact that none of the people are thals. There are two Gallifreyans and two humans, and yet these drugs work just fine on them for some reason.
1: It could be they just work on humanoids, is what it is. Oh and my god! And they're all god. humanoid.
0: The dogs <laughs> used to be humanoid. Why didn't they work on them?
1: Used to. Too read? Too I, I got nothing for it. I, I let that—that that is an easy one to give away. That's—it's more of the fact that Susan said something touched me in the woods, Granddad. And he didn't <laughs> believe her. Yeah, yeah. You want to the doctor. Fucked, fucked her and found out. I want to point out, like that is, if we distill everything down to one sentence phrases, this is the show we're watching.
0: <laughs> and I mean, uh, yes, it's a little awkward that everyone talks about how beautiful the Thals are, and they're all very clearly blonde. Um And it's just like, yeah, it's Aryan almost, little Aryan. Yeah, not happy about that
1: in their their jumpsuits is that what those would be yes yeah but also that's not how radiation
0: or evolution or mutation works at all so but i mean if if we go down that road we might as well just nuke this entire show because there's no we're never hard science is not a thing that's going to happen on this show just just accept that
1: what do you think of the fact how do you as a viewer like the idea that the dialects function on radiation
0: I mean, especially for the time period, I, I really dig it. Like, the, the, again, try and take the knowledge of dogs out of this. There's an interesting story here of two people were at war and they have destroyed their planet to the point where they have incompatible ecologies. If, if you have more radiation, the dogs survive, but the thalls die. If they have less radiation, the Thals survive, and the Daleks die. Because we know that radiation is bad for us, we are inclined to die with the Thals, Aryan supremacy aside. So on a a script level, it's a really interesting structure. And it's it's a way to kind of, okay, the the Daleks are not necessarily coded as evil but we slowly realize how evil they become. Well, the small problem of the fact is that they're very clearly evil robots from day one, except when they're not actually robots. They're, they speak in a monotone, they're threatening people, so we don't ever really have sympathy for the dogs. Occasionally, the actors make lines, like, we should worry about the Daleks, but then Ian's like, yeah, I'd rather just scoop one out and climb inside. They go, okay, cool, that, that works better, actually. Um, so, I mean, like I, I, think, I think Terry Nation had a cool idea here, and then his action-adventure instincts kind of just took over, and lost the idea, in the, the, but what if we what if we had a, a thing that could jump it? What if we had a, a corridor that could run down? I think he's got really excited about that part of it, and, and everything else coming out lost.
1: I bet you the production crew was like, sorry, the actual executives of the show was like, corridors you can run down sounds great. That sounds cheap as fuck. Yes, go do it. Yes,
0: we'll build one corridor and you'll run down all the time, and thus establishes twenty five years of Doctor Who production.
1: But, see, the Thals are considered almost instantly to be more friendly because they put the anti-radiation drugs out for them to find. Like, they're already helping you from the jump. Yeah. So you're more inclined to like them as they're they're doing something to help you. And humans have this thing where they like to see people that look more like them in some form or fashion. And in this case, Mm -hmm. humanoid compared to roundel. Right.
0: And, I mean... In the future, Doctor Who will get a lot of mileage out of the person who doesn't look human is secretly the good guy, and the person who looks human is secretly the bad guy. There actually is some really great stories with that dynamic flipped, and you can see the germ of that here, except for the fact that the are actually super fucking evil.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, they are the Nazi party. Right.
0: Granted, their doesn't isn't as explicit here. It comes much more explicit later. But even here, you can see that there, there's Again, we're 20 years out from World War II, so being terrified of people that have these kinds of ideals still very much within living memory of the people watching the show.
1: Yes. Is there anything else you really want to talk about for this episode? I feel that we've bounced around most of it.
0: I mean, there's things I could point out, like uh, the fact how Susan's note becomes suddenly magnetic uh, when it goes to the Dalek's clamp. You know, how do Daleks read English? I don't know. How do they not know what the name is? Okay. I mean, there's lots how of. The do read okay. English? Yeah, yeah, right. Like, I don't know. Here, here's a note that Susan wrote. Okay, we can totally read this. Your drugs work on us, therefore we read English. That, that's just how. Why is works.
1: Susan's first instinct to write in English? She's Gallifreyan. Right?
0: right, right, right. Some of the stuff comes down to obviously the writers couldn't know how things evolved. Some of this comes down to they didn't really care that much. But yeah, I mean, it's. It's the the big things I think is um, one uh, old Doctor Who. Is, I think it's probably some, I think it's probably the, one of the oldest shows we've watched, and it's definitely television that requires a certain way of understanding to watch it effectively, um, while recognizing that it's not going to be enjoyable to modern sensibilities. So that's, that's one piece of it. The other that we kind of miss in this structure. And Doctor Who loses it going forward. But Doctor Who wasn't really stories that kind of happened to link together. It very much fed one into the other. And the very end of this is kind of... There's a very clear cliffhanger. Every episode ends on a cliffhanger. And in later classic Doctor Who every episode ends a cliffhanger except for the ending episode. It has a pretty neat end, and then you have a pretty neat beginning, and then you go back to cliffhangers. The original Doctor Who, there was never a stop. Um, so when we skipped, you, mean, you, you saw that the Doctor, in the very first episode, you know, the, the TARDIS lands, and there's a weird place, and an ominous figure shows up. That's the cliffhanger. So we skip that series. We end at the, the, something horrible happening to the TARDIS and going off course and leads to, a, frankly, a fantastic two episode uh, run of just them going, we don't have any money for sets. So we're going to have the entire thing shot. In the, tars. So the Tars is going to go bonkers for two episodes. <laughs> um, and it's actually weirdly good. Um, but th- that was this show. And, and also another thing is this, the, f- the first season of Dr. Who, but this was almost nonstop. Like they shot an episode a week for like 43 weeks. And that was a season of Dr. Who. They got a few weeks off. I think around Christmas. Uh, so this was just something that happened every week for a very long time. And that's, these are all pieces that help you to understand doctor who, but going back and watching it doesn't necessarily make you enjoy it more. It's just more, oh, that's neat. (laughs) And this is research
1: television is what it is. Right, right. And when you mentioned that recording week in their schedule for like 43 weeks of the year, Think about William Hartnell, a man of his age having to do that, and a man in declining health over a few years.
0: Yeah, I mean, and initially, the show was structured in a way that where he could be out of whole scenes. Uh, Ian was the person that had to be the healthy one that began every episode for three weeks. When the dynamic changed, and actually, you start to see bits of it, even that change happening here, um, where the doctors slowly starting to take a more of a central role. Sadly, like you said to the detriment of, 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 Susan Hartnell's just not geared to that kind of rigorous schedule. And we don't, we have, we don't have very much of season three to look at, to see how it affected him. Uh, we have anecdotes and bits and pieces, but even bits and pieces we can see, it's pretty clear that he was struggling near the end of his tenure. So yeah, I, I, it sucks that he was fired, but he needed, he needed to go.
1: Any final closing thoughts on our official first episode of Doctor Who?
0: It's, I have a weird soft spot for Hartnell's portrayal, but it's purely based on the spinoff media, not the actual show in a way. Like I enjoy... Uh, some of the audio dramas that come out featuring his character. I've read some of the novels featuring his character, some of the comics featuring his character. Um, and I like the idea of the cranky, contemporary doctor and the manipulative doctor. But, I mean, we got the manipulative doctor in Sebastian McCoy and we got the cranky doctor in Capaldi uh, and, to a degree, uh, the other baker. So there are bits of him that I like better in other people. But there's th- this package, this this moment in time is a very distinctive doctor. And it's one that's also aged really well in the sense of this doctor makes way more sense retroactively as a very young man. You know, he's a very young Gallifreyan. How he acts, he's just a kid with a magic box going on adventures <laughs> makes way more sense. These stupid humans are getting the away of him having fun and how dare they. And then he gets into fun and realizes, Oh, this is actually really terrifying. I want to go home now. Oh wait, I can't. <laughs> makes total sense as a teenage kid from a Gallifreyan perspective. So that, I have a lot of respect for this run, but in the, hey, I want to throw something on and watch it, Hartnell's never going to be the top of my list.
1: Agreed. No, that was, that was perfectly stated. And I've, I've said up front that Hartnell is not my doctor, and I'm glad that we watched it, but I am unlikely to watch these episodes again unless it's for this show in yeah. some form or fashion.
0: You specifically, you may want to break that. I, I do recommend maybe watching The Gunslingers because it's Doctor You're Who does the fighter. American West. And so it's British people trying to do American accents, which I think you'll appreciate. It's a musical on top of that uh, because there's a musical number that they do every episode. And it's also William Hartnell clearly ha- doing comedy which is something he's actually very good at. He didn't do enough of in this run.
1: All right. I, I may go back and look for it. I, I probably have seen it way back when and blocked it out of my brain, but I, I will. I'll give that one a shot since you recommend it. People say
0: it. it is a horrible story and I completely disagree. It, 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 again, we just watched Briscoe County Jr. for the Patreon. So if you <laughs> like that, you probably like the Gunslingers. <laughs> uh, awesome. But yes, otherwise I am done. So Chris, why don't you tell us what we're going to watch next time?
1: Uh, next week. Uh, next time, we're going to be doing a little renewal into Patrick Trouton's era, and as our general breakdown recap breakdown of the show this time around, we're each going to be choosing an episode from one of the Doctors that we either personally enjoy or want to Ooh. torment the other person with. Goes <laughs> <Ghost> like, <light. clears throat> <laughs> but for the second Doctor, my choice is going to be Tomb of the Cybermen. I think it's a it's a classic that everyone should watch, and it has some some questionable bits, some genius bits, and it'll be fun to talk about.
0: Yeah. And uh, one, one thing to keep in mind as you're watching it, uh, this is the serial that Matt Smith watched when he, was, when he was hired to play the Doctor. And this is the one that inspired him the most. So it's also fun to watch this and see, oh, how did this inspire Matt Smith?
1: And I would like to start a new thing since we both love Doctor Who so much and see if you like this idea before we okay. do our role ending credits or we talk about where we can buy our stuff. I think each of us should also choose an ending quote from the doctor. Whoever, whoever starts the show gets their quote, and then the person at the end also gets a quote to round out that doctor with. Okay. All right. Do you have a quote ready? I do. Come on. It's my idea. Of course, <laughs> I'm going to be ready for it. And, and I specifically chose this one because, in my opinion, this is the best uh, William Hartnell's speech that he gives. Okay. Do you want to guess what it is? Is it the Sunday I'll Come Back? It is. I I like that one. (laughs) One day I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Like that is a powerful statement from the doctor that I love, regardless of which incarnation it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's 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 one of his most iconic, one of Hartnell's most iconic speeches. I completely agree.
1: If we try something new, since we love yeah. Doctor Who so much, we can
0: Oh, yeah, no, totally. I'm into it. Uh, but yeah, if people wanted to talk to you about um, your deep abiding love of Susan Foreman, where they find you online.
1: On uh, the you Discord, you could also catch me on Blue Sky. I'm still on X. I, I recently posted about running a D&D game for my daughter and some other some kids, all between seven and nine that went really well. Uh, if you want to know how it went, you can check me out. What about you? Sounds good.
0: You can find me uh, a couple of different social media places um, and my website, but generally if you look for pug steady, that's where you'll find me. That's uh, Um But mostly uh, you'll find me on uh, the darker Hue discord where rich uh, Chris is often sending me uh, Martha was robbed
1: memes. So, cause she was, I have, thank you for mentioning that because I do have one more game. I have so many games for Doctor Who. (laughs) Just a matter if I remember them each time we record. The thing we're going to start now is if you had, if you could pick one companion from this doctor to be your companion. And by the end, by the end of like our baker, this is going to be your TARDIS team. Okay. Who would you pick? You get first pick because you did the first episode. I'll get first pick next time. Okay. Still Barbara Wright. That is an excellent pick. (laughs) (laughs) I would probably pick Susan from The Unearthly Child, Susan. Oh, really? Okay. Because Susan is a genius. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the show doesn't treat her how they should treat her, but that's another story we'll get into later.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a long trend of female companion problems. Uh, But we're not there yet. Right now, we're going to talk next week about uh, Tomb of the Cybermen. So see you then.